attributed to to that in that same way. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that Harold Cruz points out. It's like in the 60s, people were Maoists and people were pro-Ho Chi Minh. The revolutionary nationalism that was affirmed within China and Vietnam was denigrated within America. And, yeah, just everything that people accuse nationalists of, not only could you recognize other formations are doing the same things, if not worse, I mean, I think it's just a reality that people don't know enough about black nationalism to even make an objective assessment of the organizational functionings of these institutions. What they're reacting to is, I think, largely their emotional relationship to what they've perceived these ideas attached to. So I think it's also useful to talk about like Booker T mm-hmm. and his notion of, oh, don't worry about the politics, don't worry about the lynching, just get money. Mm-hmm. And how that was narrated like outside the context of he was in the South where they lynch people. Mm-hmm. So what was he going to say? Mm-hmm. And just I think there's something about the violence done to black bodies, particularly black male bodies, just being erased from people's minds. It's part of what makes the attack on black nationalism possible, where it's mm-hmm. like Booker T you wanted him to say, how dare you lynch my brothers, they would have lynched him. That thought doesn't seem to come to people's mind mm-hmm. in terms of how you have a nuanced critique of him. It's just he was a sellout. Mm-hmm. Similarly, the Panthers, it's like, or the Revolution Ram, BLA, they loved guns. It's like they were getting drafted to go to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. They were either going to kill brown people in the name of America or they were going to turn the guns on their oppressors at home. That is, and, and again, in terms of the gender stuff, like literally women weren't drafted. It's not gender essentialism to point out that reality where they were put in this horrible position of either go fight overseas, go to jail, leave their homes, move to Canada, go underground. Like, it really wasn't other choices. So this was this horrible social condition uniquely attached to black men. And then responding from that unique social position is somehow deemed sexist. Because, again, the idea that, like, black men speaking about their unique conditions is somehow wrong. When, like, again, literally only black men were drafted. So just... Something about the un- ability to understand violence tied to black people in general, but especially black men, and in the particular context of black nationalism, because it is so overcoated with maleness. Mm. So much so that communalist, uh, more socialistic forms of nationalism done by black women are oftentimes lumped into the black internationalist category, mm. or the mutual aid category, or the welfare rights category. Mm. They are somehow gerrymandered out of the possibility of being black nationalist, mm. even though a lot of these people were ideologically heterodox and had many black nationalist views amongst other views. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that, that part in particular about black nationalism being overcoated with maleness. Because for me, one of the things that's frustrating about some of these criticisms, you know, we take, for instance, like the black feminist critique, is that, you know, sexism exists across ideology, right? That there is nothing about integration, that integrationist, that make them less patriarchal than black nationalists, right? And there seemed to me to be a very intentional attempt by the most popular versions of black feminist critique, the most mainstream versions, to go specifically after black nationalism. Um, and so even when we think about some of the intellectual history, particularly 60s and beyond, where um, and Sylvia Winter and her piece, um, Mistaking the Map for the Territory, when she talks about the ways in which the black arts movement um, you know, was undermined by an attempt to liberalize it, and a part of the attempt to liberalize it um, was to um, characterize notions of black sovereignty, right, as inherently 
violent, patriarchal, etc. Um, and so, so delving into some of the intellectual history in particular, um, and, and I mentioned this piece around like what gets curated to be in the larger mainstream. I think a part of what we what happens is that the versions of black nationalism we get in the mainstream, to your point, are the versions that people have experienced, have had maybe negative or traumatizing experiences with. And so that's the version of black nationalism that gets projected onto all of the black nationalist formations that, again, are less well-known. Like, even here in Baltimore, we think about the, one of the things I talk about a lot are the community action agencies, the anti-poverty agencies that were created post the 60s. And that one of the fights from black nationalists during the 60s and 70s were trying to make it so those anti-poverty agencies were community-led. And Baltimore was actually one of three cities that at a black power conference in the 60s was was characterized as one of the best anti-poverty agencies in the country because it was resident led. Right. So it was a black power conference is commenting on work here in Baltimore. Uh, folks like Walter Carter, who was kind of the center of that, Walter Carter and Perrin Mitchell, two very prominent figures in black Baltimore political history. I don't think a lot of people today would characterize them as black nationalists per se, but their perspective mm-hmm. reflects black nationalism in terms of, you know, the idea of black people controlling the institutions that govern our lives. Um, and so, so for me, when I, again, going back to this notion of the caricatures of black nationalism, and I find myself in a lot of respects being frustrated with the fact that there aren't spaces to push back against these caricatures, right? You think about like Soul on Ice and Eldridge Cleaver, you know, Ber- Berkeley students and faculty made, made that popular. They mm-hmm. were, you know, in many respects, the biggest consumers of that. Um, but you have folks that will then characterize Eldridge Cleaver as like a patron saint of black nationalism mm-hmm. when there are a lot of black nationalists that, that really didn't engage his work, right? And so, mm-hmm. so yeah, and so for me, a part of the the you know, the work is figuring out how to counter these caricatures, like giving, and that's part of why I made it a point, even in this conversation, to mention Walter Carter, Perrin Mitchell, giving, giving, giving people other figures that engage black nationalist politics to disrupt some of these, these caricatures. Yeah. It's a lot, it's a lot going on. So I will say that I think some extent what's happening is people are processing black nationalism through what Marimba Ani might call the rhetorical ethical frame. So black nationalists will make some statements about returning pride to the black men or like restoring the black men to a position of power. I think that those rhetorical statements oftentimes first ignore the reality of gender violence against black men specifically, but secondly ignore existentially how many of those operations actually operated was far more gender conscious than how the rhetoric was portrayed. So just look at like a Mary Baraka and like what they were doing in Newark, where it's like a Mary was the figurehead who was lifted up, but the actual organization was, you know, had a lot of strong women all over the place and did a lot for the community that wasn't encapsulated by just the figures of men that were taken into the white media frame. So if the white academic media gaze focuses on men, then by necessity, <laughs> what happens in the academy is that the men get focused on and that replicates uh, a certain form of erasure, but it's almost like we didn't do that. Like, the white academy did that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So transposing these frames of Eurocentric feminism where men, white men don't seem to be subject to unique forms of gender violence onto 
black people's lived experience where it's like, oh, if black men are talking about protecting themselves, it must be to dominate other people, right? So this idea of projection, you know, that epistemic convergence that like Dr. Curry talks about, I think is very prominent in how these uh, stories are narrated. Um, and yeah, I think that again, my father would tell the story where it's funny how stereotypes shift. You always want to be very cautious of how stereotypes shift because you learn something. I mean, even back in the day, black people used to be thought of as great swimmers because they were close to Africa in the rivers. <laughs> and then it flipped in terms of now black folks can't swim with urbanization. They used to be, you know, talk to like the Panthers of literature, black nationalism was seen as a college kid's affectation. At least certain forms of pan-Africanism was seen as like a college kid's affectation. Mm-hmm. It wasn't seen as like un- ignorant hoteps mm-hmm. who don't know nothing. These were like, these are college kids. Like the actual people on the streets like are talking about how to move resources, how to move power while, you know. So it's just the fact that it shifts from being an affectation of college kids that was also not necessarily entirely tied to men. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so, you know, so, but then it gets flipped into only men who are uneducated and somehow ignorant. Like that stereotype shifts over time. Because mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, there are people on Twitter right now who is like, if you talk bad about Kamala Harris, I think you deserve to be killed. But I don't think all black feminists are that. But people take the most extreme examples of black nationalism, like my father who was light-skinned, said back in the 60s and the 70s when, you know, the pop culture versions of black nationalism, black power were in the zeitgeist. Someone came up to him and was like, yeah, when the revolution comes, we're going to shoot all you light-skinned niggas too. <laughs> and I feel like some version of that happened to people, mm-hmm. and they never forgave black nationalism since. Mm-hmm. It's like there are thousands of people who all had some version of that experience, mm-hmm. and that's what black nationalism has been for them forever and never, amen. Mm-hmm. Because they have the power to narrate in the academy and media what black nationalism is, and it's those ridiculous caricatures. Mm-hmm. Like you would never say black feminism is only the most outrageous K-Hive person, mm-hmm. but that's what they do to black nationalism. Mm-hmm. And I think one last piece on this point around just some of the caricatures, I have found that what has been most helpful to me are particular figures who I think start as either socialist or communist and then move further along to like black nationalism and pan-Africanism as their perspective. So I think about somebody like Hubert Henry Harrison who starts off in the Socialist Party, ends up, you know, in the Garvey movement, right? Ends up, you know, being the editor of the, the Negro World. How about someone like, like George Padmore, who also starts in the Socialist Party. And in fact, in his book, Communism or Pan-Africanism, um, I think it's Richard Wright that actually writes the um, intro, where he says that part of the, the reason he's writing the book is because African resistance, all forms of African resistance, get a tribute to communism mm-hmm. in ways that to take away from, you know, the things that black folks have done on our own um, in order to engage in our free movement. And he says that black people's struggle for freedom precedes, you know, the formation of communism and Marxism and all that. Um, so I mentioned that here because when I think about the notion Again, the caricature of black nationalism being a less mature political frame, I think about some of the most sophisticated intellectuals um, who were in other formations ended up, mm-hmm. um, you know, closer to black nationalism and pan-Africanism. Um, whereas what popularly gets narrated, you mentioned Malcolm X earlier, who they kind of do the reverse, 
where the goal is to try to get flat black folks, if they start with black nationalism, you mature mm-hmm. into, right, the not being a black nationalist, um, you know, because because of these caricatures. In some ways, and so tying in integration into this as well, in some ways, the notion of, of internalized beliefs in black inferiority, I think, drive a lot of the politics here. Because to me, what is happening is, is that if you have a fundamental belief in notions of black inferiority, then anything that is, that is fueled, supported by, reliant on black people's ability to free ourselves doesn't feel like a winning strategy. Unless it's vouched for by white folks. Right, exactly. You know what I mean? And I think that particular kind of deeply, I think, in some cases subconscious, in other cases probably more conscious than subconscious, but that kind of subconscious um, notion, I think, drives the politics and drives people away from black nationalism. And in some ways, when folks think of notions of black communities, particularly working class black communities, being projected as inherently pathological. Like, I think that there are many folks that are engaged in politics for whom, and they may not know that they believe this, but they believe in these notions of black inferiority, and therefore black nationalism for them is off the table. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think that's something that um, I would want to, I would want, you know, again, folks listening, engaged in politics, to really challenge, to, to, to be challenged. Um and I think, and so a lot of ways, I think that bleeds into some of the contempt when we look contemporaneously at like black nationalism um, and the extent to which it's been curated out of the political discourse. Um, I mean, I think it's astonishing, you know, when we compare even like 30 years ago to now, like just to compare the level of erasure of notions of black nationalism mm-hmm. from mainstream political discourse. Yeah. Um, and again, I think that has everything to do with what I just described, this notion, this negrophobia, you know, yeah. borrowing from Fanon of like doing the black thing, this doing the super black thing can't be a winning strategy going back to what we said in the beginning, because people's sense of what it is for black people to be free it can't be black people to do it ourselves. I just think that's so much of why black nationalism has been so framed out of the contemporary conversation. Yeah, I think part of it is, like you said, just this feeling that like just something wrong. Like I think the very idea of wanting to have your own stuff, like that itself is violent because it's violent to your relationship with whiteness. Mm. It's violent to your white social relationships potential white friends or black people who have white friends. Like, the very idea of saying, I want to do my own thing does violence to that relationship, so black nationalism is coded as violent. Not like, shoot guns violent, but just violent to the social order. Violent to status quo institutions, and that produces an anxiety within people. So even, again, how these caricatures produce themselves, it's like, not just that was a particular moment where revolutionary violence was more in the zeitgeist, but in general, black nationalism, whether it's slave revolts, mm-hmm. whether it's always framed as violent, you know, and, and it's really more violent to the status quo than, like, guns violent, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And I think part of it, again, is, like, it's being footnoted, so it's being strategically incorporated into, like, uh, the gumbo of what is whatever we call this anti-racist moment, where it's, like, they'll footnote Haiti. They'll footnote... Um, some of these uh, black 
nationalist struggles, so footnote Garvey, but they won't actually explain anything. Like, just me personally, like, if you don't know that there was actual underground organizing in Newark, and Mary Baraka leading the Gary Convention feels random. Mm -hmm. It feels like it proves the critique of black nationalism. Like, why'd they put the poet up there? He wasn't just a poet. <laughs> that was a whole citywide, very effective organizing campaign in Newark that most people don't know about. And again, just again, contemporaneously, like Newark has a largely black-led anti-violence movement that's been very effective. Mm-hmm. But when you Google the anti-violence movement, you see it as starting with a white epidemiologist. Mm-hmm. And he realized violence spread like a disease. And then that's when the universities came in, the white nonprofits came in, and that's the story we narrate about how anti-violence is not the nation of Islam working with brothers inside and outside since the 50s. Mm-hmm. Like that the black community has been doing anti-violence work for a very long time. But when people, again, I think sometimes very well-meaning folks, they try to research it, what they get is, do you got a TED Talk? White guy. He mm-hmm. was like, I was in Africa studying diseases, and I said tuberculosis, like violence doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. That's just what people get. So people don't even know the extent to which they're being curated to have a particular interpretation of, like, this is what moves. Like, this is what gets stuff done. And so the black stuff, if it got stuff done, I would know, wouldn't mm, I? Mm. Unfortunately, you wouldn't. Mm. I think it takes a degree of, it's, it's a challenge to people's idea of like, well, I'm, I have an ear to the streets, I'm smart. I wouldn't know if that stuff worked. And it's just, it's very jarring to be like, you wouldn't. Because mm. it's a very intentional curation of how you perceive the world to not have you understand the material impacts and value of that stuff. Mm. And, and the, one of the things you mentioned earlier that I think is really relevant here. You know, we see an increase in the intervention of white institutions in black social movements, and that happening a lot through the nonprofit industrial complex. And to the point you made um, about the violence that black nationalism does to many of these relationships that in many respects serve as the basis for a lot of people's livelihoods. And so to me, this, this is the place where from, this is the place for me where black nationalism becomes super clear in terms of a political trajectory because, you know, when we think about LBS, we were really clear in the beginning that we didn't want to be a nonprofit. We wanted to be an LLC. Um, it would be harder, but we wanted to be an LLC and have more of a social entrepreneurship approach to sustaining ourselves as opposed to being reliant on grants because we were clear that if we didn't control our own money, we wouldn't. We, we would be limited, right? And if we were serious about the work we want to do in our perspective, like we can't be, you know, revolutionary Pan African nationalist and have and be dependent on foundations, right? There's no way that we would be able to do that. So, so for me, I've always been super clear about that. Um, I've been in. Uh, I've been in spaces locally and nationally, and internationally, where this is controversial. The notion of building a way of sustaining the organization that is able to be independent of white control, that is able to engage larger coalitions. You know, I think sometimes people hear us and they're like, oh, they just only work with black people. You know, if you anyone who observes our work, you know, we work with a variety of different folks from different backgrounds or whatever, but we're able to engage these coalitions from a position of strength and power. Whereas I find that a lot of black people and other so-called multiracial coalitions are there because their resources connected to their presence there, mm-hmm. that they don't actually control the 
the actual governing infrastructure of the coalition, but their promise that their opinion is, is held. So to me, this is where black nationalism gets real clear and simple in terms of the political benefits of it. And we'll talk in a moment about just some of the particular political stuff that we've been able to get done that I attribute to that. But to me, that's where it gets real clear. But again, as I say, my experience in conversations that it's real controversial. How, how would how would you describe that? The fact that that to that to me, again, it's real simple. But in conversations, it's real. It becomes real controversial. I mean, if you are like living in the ocean, but you have legs and you're telling people to walk on land. It's like, that's controversial. Mm. <laughs> it's like, what I know is how to swim. And I've gotten really good at swimming. And this ocean is just natural to me. Like, it feels like home. And it's like, no, but you have legs. It's like, there are tons of resources you can get if you just stretch your legs out. Mm. And yeah, part of it is like, just like with real muscles, like your muscles will atrophy if you don't use them. So we have people, you know, many of whom are being in the major nonprofit advocacy spaces are socialized from the university, really before they even get to the university. Like if you go to like a charter school or like a magnet school, there's just patterns of socialization that lead you to imbibe certain visions of the world. That you know, it's like you're special, you have connections to powerful white people, those connections are how you're gonna serve your community, you need to foster those connections, nurture them and abstract resources in the most seamless way possible. So don't rock the boat too much. Like, you know, stand up for social justice, whatever. But, like, don't actually rock the boat. Don't piss them off. Don't make them feel like you're attacking them because that's going to challenge your ability to serve your community. So I think that starts in middle school, man. It really does. And so just being conditioned through university, through nonprofit leadership programs, youth advocacy networks, it's a very powerful system that some people get very good at working, and they see it work for them. And to some extent, they see it work for that community. So to tell them there's an alternative methodology that's like, it's a limit to what you can do in that system. It's like, so what you're saying, they don't like me? So what you're saying, they're going to betray me? It's like, no, it's just the very structure of it, certain things they can't do. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we talk about like the cannabis stuff. It's mm-hmm. like, cannabis is still federally illegal. You know, Biden talking about descheduling stuff. It's like, even if it's scheduled two, it's still illegal. Like, you still can't bank with it. And with that, foundations don't give from what I can tell, many grants to advocate for cannabis legalization, social justice up front. Only after it passes do they get to say, well, it's inevitable. Let's make the bill as good as possible. Mm-hmm. So you don't have people like we did here in Maryland. Like We've been talking about cannabis since 2014. Mm-hmm. And you know it's going to pass this year. We've worked on getting the tax revenue redistributed to the community. But that money's not going to flow until like 2026. There are no 12, 13-year grant cycles, bro. That's not mm-hmm. saying nothing about none of the people in those institutions. That's just saying structurally. Mm-hmm. They're not going to fund you for 13 years <laughs> to do upfront work, to do a reparations program like we've been able to do because we have other ways of getting money, so we can just do it. Mm-hmm. So I think with examples like that, I think it becomes more clear to folks. Mm-hmm. And there are other labels that, like, examples like that in our history that are being outside of the academic curation because the people in power to curate the history either don't have access to those stories or don't understand the necessity of narrating those stories that way. Mm-hmm. So how would you know? How would you know that there are these examples of things that you just can't do given the structure of limitations? And I think that it's just really important to show people, like materially, like 
this thing exists and it's not really a critique of nobody to say that there are no 15-year grant cycles. Mm-hmm. Like, you know that's true. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and, and I think, you know, you know, to kind of wrap up, you know, I think for, um, you know, as we talked about the way in which black, na- the caricatures of black nationalism steer people away from it, the narratives about the kind of people, you know, who are engaged in black nationalist politics, you know, p- again, you know, people kind of are encouraged to, or disincentivized in going in that, in that direction. Um, and so in thinking about contemporary political formations, um, because to your point, like people have been socialized in the other direction. Um, and a part of where that leaves things for me is, you know, we have a left that to the extent that it is operational, and I think there are lots of things to critique about the operational capacity of what is currently called the left that's engaged in politics. Um, it's largely white control and white funded. You, you mentioned cannabis, and I think cannabis is actually a great example of something that if the progressive left were seriously you know, anti-racist in a meaningful way, this should be a number one issue because this would certainly be a big wealth transfer to black people and would create a level of autonomy for black people and institutions. Um, To me, the fact that it's not one of the number one things, particularly in terms of reparations from the, from cannabis, um, that tells me that there's an, that anxiety around giving black people too much power. Um, And so so of left that is largely white dominated with some black people for whom are aligned enough with them that they're able to get a platform. Um, what with, with this. And so even when I think regionally here in Baltimore and a larger um, state level politics, um, the left doesn't exercise that much power. Um, and so the question then becomes, well, where should black people go, you know, politically? Like, what are, what are some of the formations that exist? And again, you know, we're here in Baltimore and in the state of Maryland. Uh, there are other formations that I think share our politics. They're not political organizations per se, but there are other organizations, you know, in the area that share our politics, our perspective. Um, you know, so what, what, are, what would you say... Um, in terms of, you know, being a black nationalist formation, our relationship to the left. Like, you know, what is it that folks who are in formations like ours, how how should we relate to the left that I think in many ways are so critical of black nationalism? Mm-hmm. As an organization, we've experienced, I think, some of those caricatures projected onto us. In ways of undermining our work, um, and I'll just tell you, for me, my thinking about our relationship to the left is one of almost ambivalence, um, in the sense that I'm not seeing a whole lot of policy being moved. Mm-hmm. I'm not seeing a whole bunch of institutions being built, and so in some ways, it makes sense for Black people not to be drawn to some of these leftist formations. Because they're not delivering. Yeah. That, you know what I mean? I, I, I want to explain that dynamic in a little bit more detail because I think it's the basic question of 
what actually happens when black nationalism is extracted from the political conversation. Because I think that there is this notion of revolutionary politics being processed largely through a rhetorical ethic, where largely the white left, because they're not accountable to moving any material resources, get to make more radical statements and engage in forms of performative activism that feel more radical, that some black folks are attracted to because it feels like, yeah, they're really calling out the power structures, right? Mm -hmm. I think a good example of this is the statues debate. Mm-hmm. There was a statue in Baltimore of Christopher Columbus downtown. And again, this multiracial coalition, the white left, and some black folks who similarly felt, that, like Christopher Columbus, we're going to tear it down. And again, the liberals were like, oh, let's have a commission. Let's do it legally. Let's, and they were like, no, we're just going to tear it down. And that feels radical because it's like I'm not dealing with the bureaucracy. Like I'm just going to get a rope and I'm going to get a truck and tear it down. And I think that that is a powerful example because right across the harbor, who is there a statue of? William Donald no, Schaefer. That's right, yeah. The former mayor of Baltimore, went on to be governor, person who directly undermined the efforts of Walter Carter mm-hmm. to build, put resources in the hands of the community. No similar movement to tear down his statue. Mm-hmm. And if they, and that's the thing, the white left's not going to do that because parts of their network are tied to the, the machine Schaefer built. Mm-hmm. So but you, they, they, don't even, they don't even talk about him. They act like it doesn't exist. So you never actually understand the limits of the ideology of focusing on Columbus when right across the harbor, the person who is more proximal to your suffering and the machine he built. Like, I don't care so much about tearing down Schaefer's statue, to be honest with you. I want to tear down his political machine. Mm-hmm. And that idea of, like, psychologically shifting to, like, I'm not going to do violence to the statue, but I'm going to destroy his machine. It's part of the psychological shift that's hard to make when we get so caught into the rhetorical performative ethics that the white left has become really good at, mm-hmm. right? So I think that that's just one example of looking at the distribution of resources, putting it in the hands of the community, isolating critical allies of Schaefer, mm-hmm. <laughs> delegitimizing things that they've done. I think that that's been our strategy of like materially, like, like literally, like almost like ancestor worship. Mm-hmm. Like that's how we honor people like Walter Carter who were attacked by the Schaefer machine mm-hmm. is to bring that work into contemporary. So I feel very good and strong about that. But that for a lot of people it doesn't provide the same cathartic hit of tearing down the statue, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think that's also just this, um, what um, Errol Henderson in The Revolution Will Not Be Theorized is this reverse civilizationism where it's like we look over abroad. We look to people like Amilcar Cabral and these perfect revolutionary theorists abroad, like Nkrumah, as sources of inspiration. That's not obviously to say they weren't heroic and didn't do great things, but it often becomes a tool to denigrate the people who were here mm-hmm. because they were sold, they were sellouts. Mm-hmm. They were patriarchal. They were flawed, as if the people in Africa didn't have their own internal politics and tribes and nuances with their own politics. Mm-hmm. You know, even like Cabral, it's like, when, if you actually read what they wrote, they're oftentimes advocating for the exact same approach that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Where Cabral is like, yeah, we started studying uh, theorists outside of our country, and we prepared our warriors to destroy the railroad lines, to destroy their methods of getting resources in and out of the country. And then we realized Portuguese didn't mean any railroads here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we've been taking literal playbooks from places that literally isn't relevant because there are no railroads. Mm-hmm. Similarly, he was like, yeah, we were told that the only way you can have guerrilla warfare is if they got mountains. We don't got no mountains, but our people are our mountains. Mm-hmm. So in terms of like what to do, it's like you need to use the resources and history of African people, not as a holy text, but as a playbook to innovate 
uh, to material interventions that improve people's lives. And you need to force the white left to roll with that. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what would a contemporary version of exile look like? We don't want to send people to jail. Mm-hmm. But we need some mechanism of punishing people when they violate communal social norms. Mm-hmm. So do we do like a digital exile? And don't nobody like their Instagram stories? So <laughs> do we literally send them to Africa? Mm-hmm. Do we have like like exchange programs? So we take actual youth to be socialized in Africa in a way that we find effective. The white left want to pay for that? Then yeah, mm-hmm. but it's going to be what we want. Mm-hmm. So the idea of like actually engaging in the power relationship where we set the terms of our agenda. And we say, like, this is the litmus test. If you're actually about what you say, you're going to like this. It's not going to be as cathartic as tearing down a statue of Columbus. Mm-hmm. But this is what we set out as the criteria for our vision of politics. And I think that's kind of what we did with police reform. Mm-hmm. I think that was a very effective multiracial coalition that was led by community and achieved, like, real material results. So I don't know if you want to talk about that briefly. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, really to end on, I mean, one of the most important things for me about black nationalism as a frame and one of the things that animates LBS's work, we have a strong, sturdy base of, of, you know, the core of our base being black people, working class black people who are engaged civically and otherwise. And I think one of the things that we've gotten to experience <clears throat> that unfortunately not a lot of other folks have had the experience is being able to exist in these mainstream spaces without having to be sanctioned by white folks. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that a lot of people just have not had the experience of. The only thing they've ever experienced is having to be sanctioned by some white formation in order to enter these spaces to contest for resources and to move policy. And again, we were just fortunate enough, had the foresight to think to ourselves, we're going to just steadily build this base and that we're going to exist in politics on terms of building a black base that makes us um, able to have an impact, again, as opposed to relying on many of the major institutions of civil society to do that. And, and, and so, you know, really one of the messages that I would want people to glean from this is that, you know, like I said, there, there are other folks, you know, in Baltimore and around the country that have a similar relationship to their base. But I would encourage people to really take some time to think about, you know, what the different, how freeing it is to be a black person and to be able to engage these coalitions, to be able to engage the larger white political apparatus from the perspective of not having to compromise in order to feed yourself, but being able to, the, the only metric that we have to operate by when we do our politics is, is it good for black people? Unfortunately, other people don't get to operate from that perspective. They have to consider, you know, other forces, you know, other constituencies, you know, boards of directors of their nonprofit, program officers and philanthropy, donors. Um, we're, we're really fortunate that, you know, we have a base of people for whom all they care about is does it help black people. Um, and so for me, that's the, that's the guidepost that black nationalism, I think, necessitates. Um, and my hope is that, you know, the notion of black nationalism, particularly as a political organizing frame, would be taken more seriously because I think our experience has been that when I look around at, you know, other leftist formations, I would argue we're probably the most influential in moving resources and moving policy and building institutions. And I think that's what our community needs. So, um, 
All right. Well, this was good. Black nationalism. Um, hope folks uh, tune in. Um, again, this is Dave on Love, Director of Public Policy Leaders of Beautiful Struggle, Lawrence Grand Prix. Uh, we out. Uh-huh.